This is Howard Bloom. I'm the author of seven books, and uh, if you believe them, uh, Channel 4 TV in Britain has called me the Einstein, Newton, Darwin, and Freud of the 21st century. I'm going to be discussing some absolutely mind-blowing topics with Dove Baron. Stay tuned. Welcome to another delicious episode of Curiosity Bites, the most binge-worthy podcast on the internet. If you'd like to join in the conversation about today's show or any of our past shows, you can go over to Curiosity Bites page on Facebook. My name is Dove Baron, and I am your host. You can find out more about me at DoveBaron.com. That's D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. Now, if you've been following me for any period of time across all the platforms that we're on, you likely know that I'm deeply curious about the ecstatic state. What is it? And why are we drawn to it? And why are some drawn to create it? In other words, when it comes to the ecstatic state, are you the moth or are you the flame? It's a pretty good chance that you've had an experience in your life, at least once in your life, that put you in what we call a non-ordinary state. You might have been high, you, maybe you were watching a movie or in a nightclub or attending a concert. Maybe you were a million miles from the city looking up at that night sky and in awe. Maybe you uh, are the manufacturer of these states. Maybe you're a creator of movies or a place. Maybe you're a DJ or in a band. Maybe you're an artist who created in an audience something that was way beyond your imagining. Well, that's the rabbit hole we're about to enter on this delicious series of episodes of Curiosity Bites. So grab a beverage find a cozy corner because my guest today is someone who's been called the Einstein, Darwin, Newton, and Freud of the 21st century. That's a bit big, isn't it? By England's Channel 4 TV. My guest is Howard Bloom. His new book is Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me. Really? A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. The book has been named Best Book of 2020 by the New York Times Weekly, New York Weekly Times, sorry, and the LA Weekly Times, and as the 2020's most soulful book on, uh, on the planet by the Hollywood Digest. How, Howard Bloom's writings have appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Wired, Cosmopolitan Magazine. Howard has lectured at Yale, Stanford, Columbia, all of these places at the Department of Neuroscience. He's a co-founder and chair of the Asian Space Summit. He has been published and given lectures at scholarly conferences in 12 different fields from quantum physics, cosmology, neuroscience, evolutionary biology, psychology, economics, and aerospace. Oh, and all of that was after he founded the biggest PR firm in the music industry, Building and sustaining the careers of some of the folks you might have heard of. I'm just, you know, just see if you notice any of the names you recognize them. Maybe a guy called, uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, Mick, Mick, no, Michael, Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, Billy Joel, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, John Mellencamp, Joan Jett, Kiss, Queen, Aerosmith, ACDC, Grandmaster Flash, and the Furious Five. Jack Khan, Run DMC, and roughly a hundred others. He is the quintessential Renaissance man, 
Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and help me welcome the incomparable legend that is broad knowledge and deep knowledge and i like to get into all the different subjects that's why i had i developed this show to have people like you who are very broad on here you've met some pretty interesting folks some of them i obviously mentioned but i'm sure there are many many more who's somebody you met that was really not what you expected it was somebody who you became who maybe you were deeply curious about and you met them and they were not with that, or you were not that curious about them and then you met them and like, wow, who was somebody like that for you? There's one and there's one only because he's the height of three um, ordinary superstars combined. Um, oh. And it is Michael Jackson. And the reason, okay, I had certain expectations of Michael. Before I sure. ever met him, I had read roughly a thousand articles on him. And they all said exactly the same thing. They said that Michael Jackson is a bubble baby. If you reach your hand out to shake his hand, he will just automatically withdraw. He fears other human beings. And uh, I was in Marlon Jackson's pool house, um, which is a little um, two-story building with one room on each floor. And on the first floor, there's a big pool table in the center of the room and arcade video games all around the walls, which, you know, a single arcade video game, a normal human cannot afford, much less a dozen of them. <laughs> and the brothers and I, we're up against the billiard table and the brothers have me sandwiched in the middle or on either side of me. And we're discussing merchandising. I'm trying to explain to them that when you're selling a t-shirt, you try to put together a tour that's the most astonishing thing anyone has ever seen. So your t-shirt has to reflect that. Sure. And all of a sudden, I hear the screen door opening. Now, Dove, I did not grow up among other human beings. Other kids wanted nothing to do with me. And my parents, for some reason, didn't seem to want to have anything to do with me either. So I don't know normal human rituals. But I was uh, in Israel for a year at the age of 19, and somebody taught me. When somebody enters a room that other people want you to meet, you walk over to that person, you stick your hand out, and you say, hi, my name is, and fill in the blank. And the other person will reach his or her hand out and say, hi, my name is, fill in the blank. So um, I walked over. This is the first time in my life I can ever remember doing this, Doug, oh. even after having been taught. I heard the screen door opening. I walked over. We were expecting Michael. Um, a person was halfway through the door. It was obviously Michael. I stuck out my hand and said, hi, I'm Howard. And Michael stuck out his hand and said, hi, I'm Michael. It was a slightly softer handshake than normal, but it was well within the normal range. He was not a bubble baby. He would, did not withdraw from me. And then I began to see the wonder, the astonishment, the awesomeness, the saint on the face of the earth in Michael Jackson. 
I said, I've got a press release I need your approval on. Can I read it to you? And he said, okay, let's go up to the second floor. So we went up the tiny, tiny number of steps and arrived in this single room that was heaped to literally the ceiling with keyboards and amplifiers. So Michael found an amplifier to sit on and I found an amplifier to sit on. Now, Dove, you have to know a little something about my history with writing. I, I got into microbiology and theoretical physics at the age of 10. I started reading two books a day when I was 10 years old, mostly science. I had my first scientific credentials, which we can go into at another time when I was 12 years old. Um, and then when I was 12, uh, a girl in my eighth grade class did something that had never happened before. She rolled her eyes in my direction and fixed on me. Then she made eye contact. Um, and she said, I mean, it's chilling if you've never experienced it before in your life. And she said, I told my mother, you understand the theory of relativity. And I didn't understand the theory of relativity, but I wasn't going to confess that. So uh, as soon as school got out, I jumped on my bicycle. I went to the local library um, where the librarians knew me better than my mother did. I said, give me everything you've got on relativity. They shoved two books across the, after going through the stacks, uh, across the counter at me. A great big fat book by Einstein and two collaborators, a little skinny book by Albert Einstein himself. And I pedaled home as fast as I could to understand the theory of relativity. In those days, it was said that only seven men in the world could understand that theory. Um, <laughs> I, I started with the great big fat book because I had learned that if you do things the hard way, not the easy way, you get an awful lot more out of it, much more than you'd ever expect. But it was all equations. It had like seven words of English per page and the rest yep. was equations. And I have never understood equations in my life. Yes, I can explain to you what e equals mc squared means, but not much else. So nonetheless, I plowed through the first 50 pages of this book and suddenly looked up and it was eight o'clock. And my mom was gonna put me to sleep at 10 o'clock and I still didn't understand the theory of relativity. <laughs> so with great reluctance, I turned to the little skinny book. Right. The easy way instead of the hard way. And in the introduction, it was as if Albert Einstein had personally reached out, grabbed me by the shirt, put his nose up to mine and said, schmuck, listen up. And he said, to be a genius, it's not enough to come up with a theory that only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory and then explain it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. So Albert Einstein, through the pages of a book, told me, schmuck, to be an original scientific thinker, you have to be a writer. And not just any writer, you have to be a delicious writer, a wonderful writer, a writer people cannot put down. So writing became excruciatingly important to me. And at about the same time, I got heavily involved in poetry. And Let eventually me just I would. For a minute, this, okay. This, this, we got a lot going on here already. Yes, but it so all I, relates I wanna, to wanna, Michael Jackson and the scene on the amplifier. Well, I, I just want, yeah, before we go anywhere else, because that's that was the most interesting guy. And, and, I, um, and I do want to come to that. And I want to come back to Einstein and, and, and this awakening. And we got plenty of time to go there. So, but it's interesting to me right away that. You've got this thing about writing, okay, which we know you've done a lot of since. But 
you talked about at the beginning meeting Michael Jackson, shoving your hand out and saying hello and him not being the way you expected or you were told he was going to be. But, he, but you said that was the first time, but you already were in this pool house with the Jacksons. So hold on a minute. There's something right. missing here. You've met a couple of people before that. <laughs> so, Without the hand gesture. So um, what did you do before? Do you just give him a little nod and run off to the corner? Um, no, no. I look when I was getting phone calls for four months from the Jacksons manager asking me to work with the Jacksons. And I kept saying no. Um, I said no for a simple reason, Dove. If you don't need me, then I don't want to be there. Um, right. If you're so big that a talking dog could pick up the phone and say Michael Jackson and get a cover in exchange for an interview on any publication in North America, you don't need me. Uh, I take on difficult projects. I take on challenges. I take on things that, in the words of the Village Voice about ZZ Top, they sound like hammered shit. Oh, I, I take on things that people whose value people simply fail, and by people I mean the press, right? simply fail to realize, but who have genuine value. But so I what got, got you a in call. The, what got you in the room that day then? Because like the Jacksons were already massive. Well, here's massive, the deal. Said, so I was, I was, say, I was saying no. Um, and then I got a call one day saying the Jacksons are going to be in New York. They want to meet you. Now, Dove, uh, you know, not knowing human behavior, I have to pick up little cues about what human behavior is like. And I had picked up this expression. If you're going to say no to somebody, you owe them the courtesy of saying no to their face. Right. So I said I yes to this meeting. And I went in on a Saturday night at midnight, which is difficult for me because Saturday and Sunday were the two days the phone didn't ring and the two days of my greatest concentration. <laughs> I went in at midnight to the Helmsley Palace Hotel and I took the elevator up to the second top floor and walked to the room that I was told I was supposed to go to and knocked on the door. And when the door opened two inches, I knew I was going to have to work with the Jacksons. Why? Because four brothers, I forget, it might've been five, were sitting up against the wall. Do you remember an ancient, I think it was a TDK cassette commercial where they have a guy sitting in an easy chair and he has long hair and they've apparently got a fan the size of uh, a wind oh, tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. It was, what well, was that? It wasn't, it was used on TDK. It was uh, some, it was a sound thing, right? It was a sound that, thing, yeah. right. Speakers, yeah. And so I saw these four brothers plastered up against the wall like that and immediately recognized in the first half second when the door was only open this wide that there was some malevolent force in the room. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a challenge like that, I'm your man. Right. So I had to say yes to the Jacksons. And I didn't necessarily have to shake their hands. Um, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that I didn't shake hands. I'm sure I did. Um, right. It's just that this ritual of going up to a stranger right. and sticking out your hand and explaining who you were. Um, it was the so first now, time you, I now used you're it. in the you're in the you're in the pool house. You're you're sitting on the amplifier, right. facing Michael Jackson. Right now, now let's go back just one more step. So yeah. after after getting terribly involved, hugely involved in writing, an obsession at the age of twelve because of Einstein's demand, 
um, I got into poetry. And eventually I would art direct and edit um, a literary magazine that one would win two National Academy of Poets prizes. So when I wrote a press release of, it was not an ordinary press release. Mm -hmm. it, it took advantage, it harvested all these years of obsessively developing and improving my writing, but no one had ever seen it and no one would ever see it again. So I'm sitting there on an amplifier and I'm reading this press release to Michael. And after the first two sentences, Michael goes, oh, and he slides down on the amplifier a little bit. Oh, oh. And when I get to the end, he said, did you write that? And I said, yes. And he said, that's beautiful. No one before had ever seen the art underlying the press releases I was writing. And the reason I wrote my press releases was if you came to me to be my client, I explained to you that music is not about an exchange of plastic. Music is not about an exchange of money. Music is not about an exchange of downloads. Music is an exchange of human soul. And, but if I was going to give my account executives, the people who worked for me, I had the biggest PR staff in the music industry. If I was going to put them on a case like Michael Jackson's, the only way I could get the vision across of who that person was that was in my mind was to write the damned materials myself, the bio, the press releases, all of that. My friend, Susan Blonde, who is a legend in PR, has been in awe for 30 years of the fact that I used to write all of my own materials. But how else am I going to get the vision of who this person really is, of what the soul of this person really is? Across, that, that I don't write been, it. That would, and not only would have been, but still is, extraordinarily rare because now there's some intern who writes that press release and it's overseen by somebody more senior, not necessarily the senior person, but you were actually the blood, sweat, and tears of, a, of writing copy. And any of us who've written copy, and I've written copy, and I, I'm not a copywriter, and I know copywriters, it's blood, sweat, and tears. It's not writing in the same way. It's writing to hit the emotional center. When I describe copywriting to people, I say, here's how it's different. Intellectual writing hits the head, hits the brain. Copywriting right. has to hit the emotions. It not only has to hit the emotions, if you're writing about Michael Jackson or Prince or Bob Marley or John Mellencamp, um, first you have to find the soul of that person. Right. And here's what, look, if you walked into my office and asked me to work with you, I said this, if you expect me to fashion an artificial mask for you um, called an image and sit here like a guy in a plaid suit with a cigar and say, with this image, kid, I'm going to make you a star. Then I'll send you to my best competitor. Again, you have to understand that music is an exchange of human soul. So if I'm going to work with you, I'm going to have to find the gods inside of you. Now, what does that mean? You are on an album deadline. You sit down at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in front of a blank computer screen or a blank piece of paper. You have paper terror, blank paper terror. You are sure you can never write a lyric in your life again, you have no idea of how you've written your lyrics in the past. And by four o'clock in the afternoon on a reasonably good day, 
there's a lyric in front of you. Once or twice in your life, that lyric is so perfect that it feels as if it wrote itself through you. My job is to find the gods inside you that wrote that lyric. You go on stage. Um, on a really good night, you see the pupils of the audience dilating, widening. You see their eyes widening. You see their faces melting. You see them melting together into one common blob like a big amoeba, whether it's 700 people or 70,000 people. You feel that blob reach a pseudopod out to you like a tunnel, send its energy through that tunnel. You have an out-of-body experience. You're on the ceiling watching all of this take place. You see that energy come through you, come up to some area around your head, be utterly transmogrified and channeled back to that audience where if what you do is sufficiently astonishing, you see their pupils widening even farther. And for 70 minutes on a really good night, you're a puppet, you're a marionette, you are not you anymore. Your body is a pipe through which the souls of 700 to 70,000 people are flowing up to what Peter Townsend, the founder of The Who, called the Godhead, um, and then flowing back again. The transcendent experience that you were talking about in the introduction, this is the transcendent experience, because it's not only a transcendent experience for the performer, it is a transcendent experience for the audience. It's what people really go to rock and roll concerts for, that sense of being caught up in something far bigger than yourself. And in John Mellencamp's case, this experience was so intense that when he came off stage, he would look like a scarecrow. It looked like there were no eyes in the sockets. These were just big, dark spaces. And we'd have to take him to a tiny room where he could be locked in with just one other trusted person. Once upon a time, it was me. It was usually his wife, because it took an hour for his ordinary personality to come back into his body after he had been the pipe for all of this. So mm. if I'm going to work with you, I'm going to find the gods inside you that danced you on stage and does it every time this extraordinary experience happens. So that was my mission, which is very peculiar when you realize that I was coming at this as from the point of view of a kid who had started in microbiology and theoretical physics, where the ecstatic experience does not seem to belong at all. But I, I created a field called omnology. I probably created it about 2001. It's for the omnivorously curious. It's for you when you're in your junior year of college or your sophomore year. And your dad sits you down and he says, look, you're interested, you're, you're interested in art history, you're interested in neuroscience, you're interested in film. You got to make up your mind. Which are you going to be? An art historian, a neuroscientist, a <laughs> filmmaker? And until you make up your mind, you're nobody. And omnology is there to say, fuck you, dad. Right. I have three curiosities. I'm going to follow them for as long as they motivate me. Mm -hmm. And if new curiosities arise, I'm going to follow those too. So that when I hit the age of 40 and all my friends are going through a midlife crisis and wondering why they're here on planet Earth and the men are buying little red sports cars and picking up blondes and cheating on their wives and the women are planning elaborate divorces so they can finally find themselves 
I will be coming back from the desert of my multiple curiosities with my first answers to things. And while my friends feel it's the end of their life, I will know it's the beginning of mine. And where does omnology come from? We create an omniscient God. That means we have an aspiration to omniscience because gods are aspirations. They are not mm -hmm. beings. Right. Um, and um, science is about coming to understand everything. Mm -hmm. And nothing is outside the purview of science. So if science doesn't understand the ecstatic experience, it's not science yet. How in the world do elementary particles like quarks and leptons end up having an ecstatic experience 13.7 billion years later? If we can't answer that question, it ain't science yet. Now, uh, last week, the New Scientist magazine announced that Michio Kaku, you know, the famous physicist yep, from Columbia University. Yep. Right. Fabulous. So Michio Kaku is about to give a lecture on grand unified theories of everything. Guts, they're called, grand unified theories. Well, I have a grand unified theory of everything in the universe, including sex violence and the human soul. And I've been working on it since I was 12 years old. And something became glaringly apparent when the new scientist gave a description of this talk. Michio Kaku is going to talk about how to boil the whole universe down to an equation you can put on your t-shirt. Fuck that. That's not how I approach the cosmos, by boiling it down to the tiniest little thing. Um, I've been approaching the universe of grain unified theory from the opposite point of view. When I was 12 years old, I started to build a timeline of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. And that timeline included everything from the Big Bang, which was highly controversial in those days. Sure. Many were sure it was going to be wiped off the face of the earth. The idea was going to be wiped out soon. To the birth of stars, the birth, to the birth of galaxies, the birth of stars, uh, the birth of life, and the poetry of Andrew Marvel, and, what the, and the conversation you and I are having right now. Everything is in that timeline. So instead of boiling things down to the smallest little bit, I have been looking at the biggest picture imaginable. And my Granite Unified Theory will never fit on a t-shirt. And that is not the goal to have it fit on a t-shirt. The goal is to show you how all of these elements um, from the, the birth of, of uh, moons and, and planets um, to the birth of the uh, English East Indian Company that gave Andrew Marvel the vocabulary that he used into his coy mistress, a piece of poetry designed to seduce a woman. It's um, interesting that all these things, I mean, because I'm with you, I think that all these things, everything is connected. I do believe that. Do you remember James Burke? Oh, James Burke is, I'm a huge fan of James yeah, me too. Burke. And I, he's I, a I, huge I, fan, but he's a huge fan of mine. I, I loved his work. And I, when I was a kid, I, I used to watch his show called Connections, James Burke's Right. Connections. Oh, it's amazing. Once yeah. you see one episode, you'll never see the world in the same no, old way but, again. But people have never heard of that show. I knew you'd know it. And it right. was my original inspiration around a lot of this curiosity because he was able to show how um, 
a, a glass that you were holding in your hand was related to the Gutenberg press and how right. it was related. And I loved that approach and that understanding. I mean, he was a journalist and he was a researcher, but he understood in a way that never been communicated before that all things were connected because we're now talking about the ecstatic state. We're talking, you know, even we're almost at the end of the first section, ecstatic state, writing, Einstein, grand unified theory. And we've only gotten to the, the first of the three things that were fascinating about Michael Jackson. So let's, right. let's close up this section by going find out what the other two were. Cause well, basically, like, oh, okay. When I was 10 years old, what brought me into science was a book that appeared on my lap one day in my family's living room. I don't know where it came from on it. I never saw it again. And it said, the first two laws of science are these, the truth at any price, including the price of your life. And it gave the example of Galileo, who it said would have been willing to go to the stake in order to defend his truth. That's historically wrong, but that's another story. Yeah. Um, and principle number two, look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. Look for things that are invisible to you, that you and everybody around you take for granted. Bring them into the realm of visibility and then proceed from there. And it gave the example of Anton von Leeuwenhoek, who invented the microscope. Michael Jackson, in ways that I will have to describe in the next episode, sure. uh, Michael Jackson was the living incarnation of those laws that had become my religion when I was 10 years old and remain my religion today, the living incarnation. So I'll tell you the stories when we get into That's the next half hour. Yeah, so the first two laws of science were personified by a guy who we think of as the king of pop. Yes. So that is a great place for us to end this section because, you know, I, I've managed to get one question in so far. <laughs> <laughs> Astonishing. Uh, but it's great. That's great. So it's, but it's, it's, again, I, I want to encourage you, dear listener, to just continue on with us. Uh, to stay curious because we're going to explore a lot of these different things and these different ideas. As I said, I'm here with Howard Bloom. He is the quintessential Renaissance man. And so we're just one click away. And remember, we need your help in, in getting the show out there. So please rate, review, subscribe to the show and share it with everybody you know. Like, you know, information is not for hoarding, it's for sharing. So we'll see you in one click. Till then, stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. <laughs>